What role does popular culture, all the things we take in day to day, like movies, novels, comics, television, what roles do all those things play in making up who we are, our identity? Well, today, we're going to try to answer that question by honing in on some aspects of Latino cultural identity, or Latinidad. To do so, we'll talk to a couple of people who know all about identity questions, professionally and personally. We'll also take a trip to a comic book store. My name is Angela Becerra-Vidigar, and you're listening to The Human Angle. I'm a literary and cultural scholar, and on this show, I bring you conversations with the people whose job it is to explore the human experience and our place in the world. We talk about current issues and aspects of contemporary culture that matter deeply in our everyday lives, our relationships to each other, and our histories as a diverse human community. Together with experts in fields like literature, history, music, philosophy, and the arts, we put the human back into the humanities. Joining me in today's conversation are professors Ramon Saldivar and Frederick Aldama, two literary scholars who have done a lot of work on the experience of people whose identities cross the boundaries between different ethnicities or cultures. Ramon Saldivar is the Hoagland Family Professor of English and Comparative Literature here at Stanford University. He's the author of several books that include Chicano Narratives, The Dialectics of Difference, and also The Borderlands of Culture, Américo Paredes, and the Transnational Imaginary. Ramon recently received the National Humanities Medal for his pioneering work on Chicano and other cross-cultural ethnic identities. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Angela. So what a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Looking forward to our conversation. My other guest is Frederick Aldama, who is Arts and Humanities Distinguished Professor of English at The Ohio State University. He's also the founder and director of LASER, or the Latino and Latin American Space for Enrichment Research at OSU. Frederick has written many works in which he uses narrative theory and cognitive science to better understand Latino and Latin American culture, including literature, art, film, music, comics, so many things that we love to talk about and experience. Two of these books include Your Brain on Latino Comics and also a collection he edited called Multicultural Comics from Zap to Blue Beetle. His most recent work is called Latinos and Narrative Media. Frederick is also a Stanford alumnus, so welcome back to campus. Thank you. We're going to try to cover a few main areas of this topic about Latinos and popular culture. First of all, how Latinos consume popular culture. What kinds of things are they taking in and watching and listening to? And then also we want to talk about popular culture that's being produced by Latinos. What are they writing? What kind of films are they making? First of all, Ramon, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience with popular culture as a U.S. Latino? And it's close to home for me because Ramon and I share something, which is that we both grew up in Texas. And actually, I lived for a few years just a couple of hours away from where Ramon grew up in Brownsville. So could you tell us about your experience growing up in sure. that environment? And sure. First of all, I guess the most important for me, thing for me to say about popular culture is that, you know, um, it is the lifeblood of who we are. 
It is, you know, the very way in which we communicate our essence to one another and really learn from each other how to become who we are. That was certainly my experience. I mean, that's in a nutshell what I would like to say about uh, experiencing popular culture on the U.S.-Mexico border, in particular the Norteño-Tejano border, <laughs> you know, because um, as Angela well knows from her own growing up there, it's an interesting blend of multiple worlds, not just two worlds, multiple worlds, um, that is um, certainly parallel to what happens, I think, so, for instance, on the Mexico uh, New Mexico border or the Mexico-Arizona border and even the Mexico-California border, but distinct in interesting ways. And what was particular about South Texas and, and my experience with, with popular culture was this, that really there was no border at that time, at least I, not one that, that I could experience in any concrete phenomenological way. Basically, there was Mexico and there was the U.S., and they blended into one another. As a young boy, for instance, I remember on Wednesdays, very typically, just getting on on a bus, city bus, with my grandfather going to the market in Matamoros, you know, a mile away, and buying coffee, sugar, having a taco for lunch, and coming back home. Today, that's it, it's almost impossible to do that for many reasons that we all know. But the same thing was true for culture. There wasn't this, you know, dichotomous split. So music, film... Things that we would read would be in both Spanish and English with a clear flow. I would go to Mexican movies with my grandparents in Brownsville. I would read the Mexican, you know, the, uh, the Spanish language Mexican newspapers that my grandfather would buy. I would read the English language newspapers in the evening because they were available. And for music in particular, it meant that a world uh, that was a, a crossroad of much broader hemispheric importance was present as well. So, for instance, so I'm going to date myself here. It's very obvious that I grew up in the 60s. And so the, all of the change in American popular music was what I experienced. And the flow of music from the Caribbean, the flow of music from Mexico, that three-part mixture with African-American blues, jazz, uh, and uh, rhythm and blues Mixing with Caribbean, Mexican music was really the context within which I grew up. So for me, you know, popular culture was basically a hemispheric one. It was what we lived and breathed in the most obvious way. It didn't seem like anything special until I left the border. (laughs) Then it was very different and evident that the world that I had grown up with was special in many ways. What music were you listening to? It's right at the top of my list, you know, sort of now thinking of my teenage years, you know, you know, 12, 13, 14, um, was Santana and in particular Evil Ways. Why that? Well, because I was listening to rock and roll. But here was a group from California, from the Mexican border, from the U.S., who were showing how the rhythms, the beats, even the words of songs that I grew up listening to from my uncles and aunts and grandparents and parents, which, you know, as a teenager getting into that world, seemed to me really old-fashioned and and really sort of dated in a way. Well, Santana was showing how that music could, in effect, form a foundation for a new kind of music and, in fact, really sort of resurface the, the origins of American rock and roll, which, of course, was always imbued with Latino rhythms and beats. Then, of course, there were people like the Rolling Stones, Steely Dan, Taj Mahal. Frederick, what was your experience like? 
Where did you grow up and what kinds of things did you consume, music and otherwise, comics maybe? <laughs> so I was born in Mexico City and things didn't quite work out with my parents. So my mom took us back here to the U.S. and she was a school teacher. We settled in Sacramento, first in the urban part, the core, and then the idea back then in the early 70s was you kind of made it a little bit if you moved to the suburbs. So a lot of my early days were suburban Sacramento experienced. That said, you know, there was always the trips to the flea market on the weekends, which was a special kind of occasion for the family. And we would go with my mom, and that's where I would buy my luchador masks and, and my even comics, um, older comics. It was a time where I had my little pocket money, and I could actually exercise my own agency and the kinds of things that I consumed. I did all sorts of crazy stuff with that. So I used to dress up as a kind of, you know, Batman, but with my luchador mask, (laughs) you know, or a Superman (laughs) with my leotards and my red cape. But then, you know, with El Santo or Blue Demon going on. um, And then, of course, I loved comic books. Back then, you know, a kid could buy a comic book without too much. Now they're $4, then they were Mm -hmm. a quarter. And even though the comic books, for the most part, didn't reflect me in my sort of odd identity in terms of where I was born and growing up, I love them because, you know, the freedom that I imagined, the flying, the fighting, all of those things, me putting myself in the shoes of whether it's Batman or Superman or even White Tiger, um, which was part of the Kung Fu stuff. So, yeah, it was a very interesting, you know, my mother, single mom, a teacher, (laughs) working mostly with Latino kids that had less privilege than, than we did, my grandmother very much in our lives, also as a as a person, not only to help my mom raise us, but also, you know, helping even financially. So I was sort of in a little mini matriarchal system. That's sort of what grew me, the, those identities, the women, the strength of those women. And believe it or not, my grandmother was Guatemalan, and she migrated in the 30s. At the time, I was shocked, but she told me at a certain moment when she was a 16 or so, she said she realized the only way to get ahead in this moment in time in the U.S. was to marry a tall white man so that she would give the next generation an opportunity by lightening and making them taller. She worked in the factories in L.A., and she did. She married an Irish-American, very tall, white fellow who, after they were married, forbid her from speaking Spanish with her children. So on both sides, having you know, these different kinds of experiences very much informing, along with all of the mainstream popular culture that I was consuming. Just from listening to our different stories about growing up and our experiences, it's easy to see how complex the cultural identity of Latinos is. And I'm going to pull out a little bit of academic lingo here (laughs) (laughs) to talk about it. And that's a word hybridity. Frederick, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about what hybridity means in this context of making up someone's identity and how it relates to the complexity of these identities as opposed to a more simple dual identity way of understanding it. You know, the the words on either side of the hyphen, Mm. you're not just 
Mexican and American or Colombian and American. It's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. My feeling is that there are moments and contexts where it's important to make visible identities and where identities have been marginalized and even, you know, there have been a lot of political and social pressures to erase those identities. And in those circumstances, and we know this with the civil rights struggle and even struggles that continue today in places like Arizona and other parts of the country, I think it's important to... I mean, I hate to use the word, but to essentialize, to say that this group is made of these individuals that share maybe a common history of oppression or common history of language or culture are the ones that we need to be aware of. And in that sense, in those moments, and I know in the academic world, this has been called a kind of strategic essentialism or something. I think those can be very important moments. On the other hand, I think today... What we're seeing is, in general, more of our presence in and through the building blocks that make up the United States, the reality, the culture, the experience. In a way, it's a moment of celebration. I talk to you know, Latino kids, new generation Latino kids that are playing video games where they have Latino playable characters, and they're not just the background targets that need to be annihilated. They play those just as alongside the other kinds of video games, or they've been raised on Dora, that kind of stuff. So there's a moment of great celebration happening in that our presence has really changing and transforming the reality that we experience. But at the same time, we can't be sort of complacent as well, because we know that that's not the sort of cure-all. There are still lots of doors closed. There's still glass ceilings, all of that. And for those doors to open, there are moments, I think, when we do need to group and to solidify, even if it means, for the moment, say, pushing aside the complexity. Ramon, there's an author that I know that you love, Juno Diaz, who has done a lot of work in his novels to try to get at these hybrid or two-part, multiple-part identities. How does he do that with popular culture in his novels? Juno Diaz, I think, is a perfect example of what we're talking about. And in addition that he's, uh, of course, of the current generation of the emerging young genius authors. But the main thing about Juno and the way that he deals with the many important issues that, that Frederick so eloquently names for us is he experiences them for us. So it's not simply, for Juno, an intellectual matter that, you know, one thinks about the way in which two cultures interact and what is the result of that. He does that, of course, beautifully and wonderfully and, you know, very effectively. But he does something more than that. He sort of allows us to feel it, to taste it, to live it in interesting ways. And so one of the things that I love about Juno Diaz's work is, for instance, his, his use of language in this magnificent way that uses American slang, African-American slang, Latino slang, and, and blends them into basically the language of youth culture today, and in particular, metropolitan youth culture. And it's not just a U.S. matter. It's not just a Caribbean matter. It's not just a uh, Latin American, a Mexican, or a Colombian matter, but rather something that spans now a much broader context of the world. So Juno is able to tie into that. I'll 
briefly read one of the introductory citations to his novel, *The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde*. Of what import are brief, nameless lives to Galactus? <laughs> and that's, of course, from *The Fantastic Four* by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Can you talk a little bit about these references that he makes to genre fiction and comics、yeah. in his work? First of all, and the most important thing to note is that you know, whenever an author gives you a you know an epigraph like that right at the front of a chapter, or in this case, at the front of the novel, he's signposting something very important. So clearly. From the very beginning, Juno is telling us that、uh, what is, he's going to be involved in is the deep, heavy question of who we are today and what we are becoming. But he's going to do it at the ground level of where we live, as I said a second ago. And for him, where we live is popular culture. You know, that's how we learn to talk to one another, how we learn to think about one another, how we learn sometimes to act out our conflicts with one another. And in particular, that he points to comics. And the whole range of genre fiction associated beyond comics to science fiction, fantasy, really, is very important because what he's saying is that the way that we think about the world that we live in has everything to do with how we're going to experience it. Frederick, I'd like to share a passage from your introduction to multicultural comics, and you write here that at the end of the day, these Latino author artists and multicultural author artists want not only to have their work judged by the standard of the great comic book author artists, but also not to have their talent and imagination squeezed into only one identity politics box. Can you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that? The one thing that's always been a little bit disturbing to me is both in the mainstream and in. I think at a certain point in the academy, there was a, a, a trend or a fashion as well, and for good reason in the academy. I won't go into the, that right now, but to say that us Latinos and our experiences were tied in a very restricted way to what we could imagine—that、mm -hmm. somehow we lived in a straitjacket of presentness. And without the capacity to imagine something outside of that experience, and I've always resisted that in my work because it just didn't make sense to me in my own, my own brain and how it worked. And then, of course, you you know, talking with authors, their experience was much like mine and Ramon's and yours, Angela, which is to say that they would take their present experiences. And the present experience could even have been the reading of a Faulkner novel or something,、mm -hmm. and then they distill it and pull it apart, and then they rebuild it and recreate it into something new, wonderful, and imaginative. And you know, this is very much the way our brains work. And so I started to move more deeply in my own research into the areas of cognitive science, neuroscience. And in fact, the research very much supports what we know as sort of common sense. That is to say, we're not, as human beings, as Latinos, we're not tied to the present experiential. In fact, because of our capacity to imagine outside of that, we are able to write things like the brief wondrous life and so on. What's the present experiential? So the present would be, I'm I'm a kid growing up in the suburb of Sacramento. 
maybe I'm bullied because I'm a little bit different at school or because my mom, you know, we're low income, you know, those experiences. But then I open a comic book or even in my mind without the trigger of a, I'm a superhero and I can be someone else. I can imagine existing in another place. Um, I can choose even to write it or draw it as some of these practitioners like Frank Espinosa and all of the guys, the Bros Hernandez, um, chose to do, mm-hmm. Juno Diaz, to share with others, not just Latinos, but others, to also trigger and enrich and bring a certain delight to their capacity to imagine outside of that. Let's talk about Los Bros Hernandez, mm-hmm. about Gilbert and Jaime and Mario Hernandez, who are very famous cartoonists who are also Latinos, and both of you are fans of their work. And Definitely. You know, there have always been sort of these moments. Uh, now as I look back on, you know, the last 25, 30 years of my life, moments that really have sort of changed the way that I think and the way that I look at the world. One of those moments for me was reading the Brothers Hernandez and, you know, picking up that comic book for the first time. I think the first time I read the Palomar series was probably in the mid to late 80s. So not too late, but, you know, not right at the beginning. But for me, it was just an awakening that in my cherished comic book form, which I loved as a, as a kid but felt that I had outgrown, now I could find the most central questions of the things that I thought were part of what we were all thinking about. You know, what constitutes a community? How do we interact with one another? What is the role of the individual in relation to another individual? And they were doing it in this magnificent storytelling form. By that point, I was also reading, of course, things like Garcia Marquez and Carlos Puentes. And all of a sudden, you know, that high art form was being duplicated, replicated, in some ways even bettered in this incredibly beautiful graphic form. So for me, it was like, a blending of ideas again and forms that I continue to just learn from very much. What I love about them is that we have now several decades of mm-hmm. how rich and various their imagination and then the realization of the, their imagination can be. So there's all sorts of genres that are crossed, crisscrossed, recreated characters in ways that defy even at the moment of their own creation, the expectation of us focusing on a single or maybe two or three protagonists or heroes to multiple protagonists, characters that um, we even grow, as Ramon was saying, um, to we find affinity with this community and we grow with them as they grow themselves. And the Bros Hernandez very much represent the the um, creativity and the skill and talent at telling stories in ways that, I mean, um, in fact, I will teach the Palomar series before I teach Faulkner. (laughs) It's not that I don't love Faulkner. It's just that I can do the same kinds of things with my students that I can with Faulkner. And with the graphic novel, the visual and the verbal working together, it seems that the students, it's something so at once familiar but also innovating and innovative that um, I, I capture them more easily than something like um, Absalom, Absalom, which is a novel I love, by the way. Frederick Aldama and Ramon Saldivar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And now, while we have comics on our minds, 
What better time to go in the field and find some Latino comics with special guest correspondent Vanessa Chang? Vanessa is a PhD candidate in modern thought and literature at Stanford, with a particular interest in comics studies. She got a special tour of Mission Art and Comics in San Francisco with Latino Comics Expo founder Ricardo Padilla. Hi, Ricardo. Really、uh, great to meet you. Thanks for meeting me here. I'm interested in learning more about comics and what comics can tell us about culture. You're the co-founder and executive director of the Latino Comics Expo. I mean, how how did you even get into this? Comics have been an important part of my life ever since I was a young child.、Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up in East LA,、um, memories of you know asking my father for a quarter to go down to the liquor store and get a comic are some of my earliest memories. And of course, when I had my young children, I basically raised them on comic books as、mm. a as a bridge to literacy. And in my attempt to introduce them into the comic book world, we went to different conventions. And、mm-hmm. at a young age, they started asking me, you know, Daddy, why is there no comic books that Looked like us. Why is there no、mm-hmm. Latino superheroes? Why is there no Aztec or Mayan stories? And you know, it's tough to answer those questions as as a young father. And that kind of started me on a search of looking for different artists and comic book creators who were dealing in in Latino culture, Latino folk tales, and and little by little, I would find them at, at different events and and comic book conventions, and from that was born the Latino Comics Expo, and which is in a few years has grown to be you know the premier event for Latino comic book creators in the country. I've been saying that it's kind of the golden age of Latino and Latina comic book、mm-hmm. arts and creativity right now. Just the variety of storylines, the、mm-hmm. the energy, the creativity. There's so many people working in the format, and so many voices that traditionally have not been heard.、Uh, one of the things we're proudest of in the Latino Comics Expo is that almost half of the artists participating are Latina artists. So many Latinas going back and. Telling their stories of growing up, telling their parents' stories about emigrating to this country, or,、mm-hmm. or just the things that they've had to deal with as a Latina in this culture and the society. So, what is it about comics and the hybrid visual and textual aspect of them that you think really does justice to telling these stories? A lot of artists have told me, well, you know, if you go to the pyramids at Tenochtitlan, or if you go to Chichen Itza, you can see the beautiful drawings, you can see the beautiful etchings. You can see the you know the drawings there on the ancient temples. So it's something that's deep, deep into our culture, into、mm-hmm. our our DNA. But yet to express that in probably the most American art form, comic books, I just think it's you know、yeah. the circle is complete. It's like、oh, wow. it's like we're here, but you know we're part of here as well.、Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd be able to show me some of the comics that you found interesting. Oh, I'd love to. Great. I'd love to. I always like to. Point people over to、uh, Daniel Parada's comic、uh, wow. series Zots. So it's a beautiful coming of age story too, but from a Mayan perspective. Yeah. And it's incredibly researched with Mayan cultural, you know, habits and languages and different traditions that normally we would have no chance of knowing. Looks a little gory. PG thirteen.、Oh. <laughs> The ultimate example would be the Hernandez brothers, yeah, with their Love and Rocket series. It's really amazing how they have depicted women, right? And women as strong characters. And starting in the '80s, I mean, it was so groundbreaking—not just for Latinos, but for 
for anybody. anybody. <laughs> for anybody, yeah. In some cultures, you know, being a big, powerful woman is maybe not always, mm -hmm. you know, in style or yeah. or culturally appropriate. But the Hernandez brothers are definitely not afraid of yeah. of uh, drawing, especially Latina women with all their curves mm -hmm. and with all their their beauty there to for everyone to yeah. see. And then there was the punk rock component as well, right? They, again, they show that ability to adapt something that you would think is like totally American or totally British, punk rock. What do Latinos have to do with that, you might ask, but, you know, people that know, you know, the punk rock community in L.A. and, mm -hmm. and uh, Southern California know how important it was, especially in those days, just for individual freedom and rebellion against, you know, the American conservatism that was popping up in that time. So right. that's why people really admire them is that they were not afraid to take that rebel stance, that yeah. do-it-yourself, you know, punk rock point of view. Thank you for taking the time to share your love of Latino comics and your advocacy with me. It's my pleasure. You can see the full video of our In the Field segment and listen to all our episodes by going to our website at humanangle.org. I'm Angela Becerra Vidigar, and this has been The Human Angle. The show is recorded in the studios of KZSU Stanford and is made possible by the generous support of the Stanford Humanities Center and the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford University. Special thanks for this episode go to Mission Comics and Art in San Francisco. The music is Test Drive by Zappic. I'm the executive producer. Tom Winterbottom is the producer and co-writer. And Corey Goldman is the consulting producer. Make sure to tune in again for the next episode of The Human Angle.